Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 22nd, 2015. This is episode 1608 of the Survival Podcast. And today we are going to talk about permaculture, but a little bit differently than we usually do. I am bringing on a guest named Phil Williams. Phil Williams is a permaculture consultant, designer, and author. And he is a in a full-time business as a permaculture consultant. So I've heard from people that say, can you make a living doing this as a consultant? Does anybody actually do that and make a living? And the answer is absolutely. And we're going to talk to somebody that does that today. Uh, he does come from a landscaping background and made the transition around 2008-2009. We have a very in-depth business conversation today, really more than a permaculture conversation. So even if growing food in your backyard isn't your thing, and I kind of think it should be if you're a survivalist, but even if it isn't, Uh, when it comes down to it, one of the biggest things we are dependent upon in the world today is monetary uh, things. To be able to actually afford to purchase things to get rid of our debt so that we can build sustainable lifestyles for ourselves. Uh, business ownership is one of the best ways I know to do that. I am a serial entrepreneur. I haven't had a, a regular job, not just since I started the Survival co Podcast, but since about 2004, I guess, would be the last J-O-B type job that I had. And uh, since then, everything I've done has been completely as a business owner. I might have been employed, but I own the company that employed me. And, and that's because I believe that if you really want freedom and independence, that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. The, the people that run this country uh, have written the laws and the tax code to benefit themselves as business owners. As a small business owner, you don't get all the benefits. That's for dadgone sure. And a whole lot of things apply to you negatively that don't apply to them. And a whole lot of things apply to them positively that don't apply to you. But you get to at least take advantage of some of the most basic things like being able to earn your money, then spend it, and then pay tax on what's left versus what everybody else does, which is earn your money, pay tax on it, and then spend what's left. That alone is worth building a business that can pay your bills uh, for you out of. Anyway, before I bring on Phil to talk about things like that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to HarvestEating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First you can find the stuff that he sells his organic teas his spices seasoning mixes and other products i use chef keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis pretty much uh, if i'm not re reaching for uh, the northern italian i'm probably reaching for low and slow or montana steak or the new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry it's just all awesome he also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe and cooking how to make cooking a life skill how to cook seasonally and locally uh, he's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at HarvestEating.com, and remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a, a question about cooking, you get it into me, and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com, long-term spo sponsor, great partner, great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at HarvestEating.com. 
Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the member support brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. If you love this show, if you like what we do, you want us to be around forever, consider becoming a member. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members. You can see all of the uh, great companies you get discounts from there. Think of the MSB this way. You like the show, you want to support it, you join the MSB. That's all good and well. But if you're buying stuff in the self-sufficiency realm, from the gardens to the guns, the practical to the tactical, and everything in between, we have discounts for you there. You use those discounts, you end up with a membership that's actually profitable by the end of the year. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you become a member of something that actually puts money back in your pocket and helps support the content and the programming that you like to listen to? That's what the MSP is all about. I've tried to make it a win-win-win. You win because you support the show and you get good discounts. I win because I get to do what I love. And the vendor-supporting partners win because they get business they wouldn't other otherwise have. We call that incremental revenue. It's the lifeblood of growing a business. That's what the MSP is all about. To learn more, go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members, and uh, if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, or firefighters, either active duty or prior service, just email me with TSPC service discount on the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll send you a discount code to save even more money on a product that already puts money back in your pocket. Uh, with that, I am ready to get into the main topic of today's show, and I want to introduce our special guest again. His name is Mr. Phil Williams. His website is foodproduction101.com. He's a great guy. I'm glad to have him here with us on TSP. With that, hey, Phil, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jack. appreciate it. Hey, man, I'm, I'm glad to have you on the air with us today. Um, you're here to talk today about um, managing and, and doing permaculture design projects, uh, installation and maintenance level. Um, before we get into that, which I think is a great topic, by the way, uh, could you start out by telling people how you got into what you're doing, kind of what your professional background is, and, and how you ended up in, in the world of permaculture? Sure, sure. In, I guess, about 2005, I was, I had a decent-sized landscape design build and maintenance company. So I was doing, so when I started that company, I learned the ins and outs of the landscape industry from, you know, everything from mowing to design work to installation to hardscapes, the, uh, the contracting side of it. So that's really where my background was in, 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 at that time. And then around 06, 07, I started to kind of 
question the sustainability of the entire industry. And um, I didn't really feel particularly good about what I was doing anymore. And then in, and in, in 08, I ended up having an opportunity to sell. So I took it and then I started uh, I started doing some organic gardening just here at my, my house. And I got into um, energy auditing and weatherization contracting. So I went to a trade school up in Williamsport. Um, I'm not sure how far that is from where you grew up, but uh, um, Williamsport. Um, Williamsport is close enough that we used to play Williamsport in football games. Okay. It's not yes. that far. Yeah, so they have a trade school up there, which is really great. I mean, I, I learned everything about building science, and uh, which, which was fantastic. Uh, that, that ended up being a, a quickly failed business for me. Um, but then I, I started, I really got hooked on permaculture probably 2010. Uh, I took a couple of PDCs and then I started, started doing a lot of permaculture here on my property. And then, um, and then I started doing permaculture professionally. I, you know, and, and I was just doing little bits of things here and there and it just, and, and it ended up turning into, uh, uh, a lot more than I, than I originally thought. So now I'm, uh, so now I'm documenting all the projects on my, you know, my blog and YouTube channel, and then I'm consulting and designing, and uh, I'm even working with a couple of landscape companies that are looking to do permaculture design, and then a couple of uh, PDC grads that are uh, needing help with the ins and outs of the landscape industry. Okay, before we get deeper into that topic, can you talk about where the similarities between landscape design and permaculture are? Because I, I hear an awful lot about how different it is, but... I know that when I've gone to courses and training and workshops, the guys with like you know real good backgrounds in landscape design actually do really great permaculture designs. Right, right. It, it's I think the big difference between your your permaculture design and your typical landscape design is your typical landscape design is not meant to provide for the needs of the inhabitants. You know, it's it's basically meant to look really nice be fairly easy to maintain and and that's pretty much about it so we're, we're on, as, on the landscape side I was totally focused on aesthetics that's one of the things I really didn't like about that industry is that it's you know so superficial but uh, on the, but on the permaculture side we're much more focused on uh, not only the needs of the inhabitants but also um, also trying to use the land in order to make the design more uh, function better to you know to stack our functions to uh, position our, um, our our different features to make them uh, work with each other and that and that makes the permaculture design much more dynamic and much different. Whereas landscape, we're, we're solely so, so solely focused on aesthetics. Got you, got you. Anyway, um, when when you start. Uh, where do you start at the beginning of, of a permaculture project? I think that's where most people kind of get hu kind of hung up. Like the, 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 all the stuff in the wardrobe, all the different techniques, and then people are like, well, I want a culture bed. So the first thing they say is I want to put a culture bed over there instead of like really getting into the totality of the design and then determining does that, does that element even fit this design? Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's, that, you're absolutely right, Jack. And I think for, for me, it all starts with observation. So, and I try to do this because we all sort of have our biases. So I might be comfortable putting in a pond or I might be comfortable uh, with a certain technique and I'm going to want to try to jam that into the design, but that's a big mistake. So I try to keep an open mind at every property I see. So I go in with just, I'm just going to observe. And then, uh, so I would highly recommend 
if obviously if you're if you're designing your own property, you can spend a lot of time observing, and it's not it's not a problem. But if you're dealing with a, a client, you know, the chances are they're not going to you know they're not going to pay you for a year to just observe their property. So if I'm doing work for a client, I'll walk the site with the client, and I'll just pepper them with questions, and I'll really try to get in depth because they know the property better than I do. They might not, might not realize that they do, but they do. Uh, so I'll walk the property with the homeowner and, and basically uh, get as much observation done as I can. And um, and I think it's it's really important that when you know when you're doing that initial observation, you know, and I'm talking more from the commercial side where you're working with a client, that you're also starting to talk to them a little bit about uh, you know budget and you know how much maintenance they want to do, what's realistic. Uh, because I think sometimes, especially people that are new to permaculture, there, I think they have sometimes some different expectations of what's what's really going to happen with their permaculture site based on how much work and money they'll need to put it, into it to get it to look like you know those permaculture sites they see on uh, on, on on Jeff Lawton's nice videos. Yeah, I think there's a a disconnect between what it takes to do it yourself and what it takes to do it your you know with you and and 200 people and a world class designer <laughs> and a time lapse camera that connects yeah. five years in the in a to 30 minutes i think there's a huge disconnect there yeah i agree i agree completely and uh yeah I'll, I'll, we get, we i we can get into that later i have so a few few clients that it's you know i really have to sort of rein them back in and say hey you know this is this is it's great that you want this, but this is what we're talking price-wise, and this is what we're talking work-wise. And are you willing to put that, you know, that amount of time and work into it? And most people aren't. Yeah, and I think what the, the bigger thing that people run run up against is the uh, the money. Right. So Absolutely. sooner or later, they realize, oh, it's not all free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's funny because everything, and and you see this a lot. And if you go on Permaculture Global and you go to some of these different sites that are really Heavy into the you know the permaculture side of things. Um, even like Permies is a good example. You go to the forums and everybody sort of wants to do everything for free, which is great. But sometimes it's just not practical to do these things for free. Sometimes it's just like, hey, you got to get the job done. You can sit there and talk about getting all this stuff and sourcing all these materials for free. But if you're still trying to source materials ten years later, what's the point? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, can you talk a little bit more about observation? What you actually do observe uh, when you're working with a client? And maybe, you know, like you made a really good point there that I really don't talk about enough when I when I talk about doing permaculture from a consultancy standpoint. Yeah, if I when I moved into this house, I did a few things right away, but I spent a lot of time, and I'm still observing and interacting. You can't do that with a a client because, like you said, they're not going to pay you to sit around their backyard for a year and, and contemplate your navel and where the <laughs> where the reflecting pool is going to go. But there's this, there's like micro and macro observations. So as long as I'm in my city, there's a lot of stuff I know before I get to your house. I know, you know, which way northeast, south, and west is, and all I need to know is how does your house fit into that. Uh, and I know you're going to have a cool zone based on, as soon as I get there, okay, this is going to be a cooler zone, this is going to be a hotter zone, this is going to be a wetter zone, this is going to be a drier zone. Um, so there's like this observation that can take place at the, like the regional level, and then you come down to that micro level. Right. Right. Yeah, that, you're absolutely right. When I get down to the micro level, uh, I'm looking at things like plant types, uh, insects that might be there, animals that might be visiting the site. I mean, are they having uh, deer browse problems? Are there ground dog holes all over the place? 
you know, with certain weeds, like if you get all those long tap-rooted weeds, might be telling me a story of compaction problems. If you got the nitrogen fixers, you know, maybe we have low nitrogen or the or if you get a bunch of lambs quarters, you know that they're a greedy type feeder, so maybe the soil is relatively fertile. Um, if you see no weeds, and I've been at sites where I've had clients that told me, you know, they, they give me the whole spiel about how they're really into, you know, healthy food and healthy living, and they want to do the whole permaculture thing, and I get there, and there's not a weed in the grass. And I'm like, you know, you guys are obviously putting quite a bit of herbicide on the grass, and then they tell me, oh, well, you know, we don't want to upset the neighbors. <laughs> so, but uh, uh, Let's look at your backyard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, but yeah, so I'm looking at uh, these really – these little things, you know, these plants and, and insects and animals are telling me specific things. Uh, even stuff like bent over trees might be telling me prevailing wind, uh, you know, wet and dry areas, you know, contour lines, things like that. Gotcha. Um, so what are the critical bits of information you want to acquire before you start the actual design process? Yeah, I think that's a good question because I think this, the, the, this stage when you, when you're sort of, at least a little bit past observing and you're looking to like, okay, I'm going to start doing a little bit more preparation before I start actually putting pen to paper. This is, I think is absolutely critical. And this is where in order to uh, feel like I'm putting my biases aside, this is where I'm making lots of maps. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get uh, a contour map and a plat plan. So most of your homeowners are not going to have a contour map, uh, but they're usually going to have a plat plan. And most of the time they'll tell you, uh, sorry, I don't have a plat plan, and just say, hey, can you look at your closing papers? And a lot of times it'll be it'll be in there. But um, with the contour map, a lot of people will, will use the, the Google Earth and the Google Maps. And in my experience with that stuff is that they're not particularly accurate down to the ground level perfect you know, scale is what you would do when you're doing the project. So what I usually do when I'm doing a project for somebody is I budget at least two days per five acres with the laser level to make my own contour map to make sure it's exactly the way I, the, the way it is. And then what that does is it gets me really in tune with the land. Uh, I was doing a I was designing a commercial uh, like permaculture farm for a client recently, and I and I had it in my mind. I, I looking at just looking at the land, I was like, oh, there's a perfect valley dam right at the bottom of this property and it's going to be a, a tiny little wall and we're going to have this huge pond it's going to be great and then after i did the laser level and actually really calculated i was like well that's not going to work because you know it's the, the wall is too big it's going to require permitting from dep and and the pond is not going to be near as big as i thought it was going to be so it's going to be way too expensive so it's not economically viable so and i wouldn't know that if i just you know if i was just using google earth and just sort of uh, looking at it. So I think you really have to get down there and, and, and do the actual work and make a good contour map. So once I've done the contour map, I'm going to be looking to do like sun and shade maps, which that type of map is really simple if you've got a, a solar pathfinder. Are you familiar with that device, Jack? Um, I use a, a, an app on my phone called Sunseeker. I don't know if that's kind of what you're talking about. Okay, okay. Maybe I've never, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, well, what it does is, so like the Sunseeker, just so we can kind of see if we're even in the same world, all it does is shows is the path of the sun. But it'll okay. show the path of the sun today. It'll show it on the solstice. It'll show it any day. Okay. So I can look and get my low points and high points and seasonality of the solar path, and then I can extrapolate the shadows, but it doesn't do that part for me. It just shows me the sun's path. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, that's 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 similar. The the Pathfinder, it's just it's not there's no electronics with the Pathfinder. It's just like a kind of like a globe 
uh, like kind of like a, a mirrored globe over top of like a little piece of paper that you put in there that shows you hours, days, and months. And then you look at that. You just take that Pathfinder around the property, and you can just look at it. And you can see the shadow of the trees or whatever it is that's causing shade, and it'll show you what the sun and shade is for the entire time of the year. And you can do that any time of the year and, and get your accurate for for all times of the year, which is just really it, it takes no time whatsoever. That's very cool. Well, but you, you they're like they're like three hundred bucks at solarpathfinder.com, okay. but uh, not, I have no affiliation with them. But it's def, definitely a handy tool. Um, so the, the sun and shade maps really easy to make if, if you're, if you're doing that. And then, uh, and then I'm also doing like a wind map, which we kind of talked about earlier being difficult because we can't really observe prevailing winds throughout the whole year if we're on a commercial site. But, um, again, I'm asking homeowners and observing trees and stuff like that. Uh, and then the last map I'm looking at doing, and, and I think is a really important one is a moisture and soil map. And this is where I'm going to be digging in some different areas to figure out the soil types and then just trying to figure out what the wet and dry areas of the property. And the big thing about the soil type is if you're going to do, uh, you know, if you're going to do clay lined ponds, you got to have at least 30% clay uh, if it's going to seal properly. And so you can do, you can, you can do your jar test, which is pretty easy to do if you're not 100% sure just by looking at the, uh, you know, if it's if if you're if you're digging in a hole and it's like, well, there's some clay, but I'm not 100% sure. You know, you can take a handful of that stuff, um, you know, shake it up in your water and let it sit. For I think it's a day or two, and then it'll tell you the different the different uh, layers of soil. Very cool. So once you've got all that information, and you sit down with all the maps and information, how do you produce the design for your client? Right, right. Good question. Uh, first thing I do is I make a list of what the goals are for the property owner. So you know, and I'm paying special attention to. How much maintenance they can do, and how much they're willing, or how much they're willing to pay for. And I think it's really important to match the expectations of the property owner to to reality, and to be really honest about how much maintenance is required, and how much it might cost to get it all done. And I found that um, you know, like we said earlier, that these people are just they're going to be really, really excited, and they see all this awesome stuff. Um, but um, there, there's that crazy belief that permaculture sites don't require maintenance. And the truth of the matter is, is if you've got it, it re, a lot of it depends on the stage of maturity of the site, and then how it was designed. If you designed it for maximum production, where it's impeccably weeded with lots of edge, then it's going to be extremely high maintenance. But if it's a you know something like a mature closed canopy food forest of non-grafted trees with no edge, then it's obviously it's going to be a lot less maintenance. So, um, so I'm making so what I'm doing is I'm going to make a list of all the elements that might work based on the goals and the budget of the client itself, of the client as, as well as the site. And then I'm, and I'm taking my element list and I'm marrying that with the site characteristics and all of my site maps. And then I'm going to be looking at positioning uh, those elements for maximum stacking of functions and good zonal positioning uh, with an eye towards limiting that maintenance, which I've never found somebody who says, hey, I want to have a real high maintenance site. So that seems to be kind of a universal Universal one. So. But you do find a variance in how much maintenance a person has time to do, is willing to do, and is, let's be honest, capable of doing. I mean, if I talk to a guy and he says something like, yeah, I don't mind putting 20 hours a week into this, and he has an 80-hour-a-week job, <laughs> and, and I say, what do you do on weekends? He says, I fish all weekend. No, you're not. Right. So I think sometimes people overestimate how much time they'll put in. So 
you do have to at, at times maybe look at a person and say, yeah, this person is going to put 15, 20 hours worth of, worth of maintenance a, a week. They're going to enjoy it. That's part of why they want it. Right. You can design that person a totally different design than you would with somebody with a cloned property, you know, 50 feet down the road because they're two different people. So the client has to be analyzed as an element in the system at the same level we would analyze, like whether we're going to put a chicken in it or whether we're going to plant apples or oranges or whatever. Right. No, I absolutely. I agree 100%. And the, the thing is, if you've done if you've done all the work that we've already talked about, when you get to the design process where we're putting these things together, it becomes really easy because we, we're really familiar with the property at that point and we're really familiar with the client as well. What are your thoughts on like artistic ability, drawing, things like that? Like, I, I'm a miserable uh, artist. I, I I see the design in my head perfectly, but I, I use bubble diagrams. I don't you know design in every tree or what have you. Um, I might design that in with numbers or something, but I don't design the canopies at all. But a lot of clients seem to want that that beautiful artistic creation. Right, right, and, and I'm I'm like you, Jack. I'm not a particularly good artist. I mean, I'm 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 okay doing hand renderings, and I'll. And if I'm doing a, a project for myself and I'm going to design it out, I'll do my own hand renderings, and and it's actually good. I mean, it's it's, it's a scale and it works perfectly fine, but it's not something I'd want to show the client because they would be like, uh, you know, my kid can draw better than you, and I'm yeah. this that type of thing. So for me, what I do for clients is I'll do my hand renderings, and I actually have a designer that puts it into CAD for me and makes it look professional. Professional it costs me a little bit of money, but uh, saves me a ton of time and that. You know, it gives the client that presentation. But I don't think if you want to be a designer, I mean, I, I, and I used to do tons of landscape designs too, and I never once did my own like CAD type thing, and um, that was never, never a problem. It's just a matter of of finding somebody that can do that for you, and it's it's certainly possible. I think like the delineation between skills there is important. For instance, I can take a person that's good with with graphics programs, or even just a hand artist, and say I want it to look like this, and they can do it. Mm-hmm. They can make it look beautiful. That doesn't mean for one second they understand what they've drawn. No. It might be easier for us to communicate if they understand a little bit, but you do not have to be a good permaculture designer to be a good maker of permaculture prints. Right. Which, which means that maybe you shouldn't try to be both. Right. Right. Unless you just, because the other thing is, look, this is what I've noticed with like anything that involves computer design. Like I don't do any of the CAD stuff, but I do do some video editing and, and stuff like that. It is incredibly time-consuming, and yeah. if you're a good designer, you should be out designing, not making pictures. From a business view, is how I kind of feel about it. Right, right. And, and I ran into that same, the exact same thing you're 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 saying in my in my old business because it would take so long to do these designs that I'm like, hey, I want to move on to the next client. We're losing money. Yeah, so it's it, you know, I'm not wasting my time with CAD. We'll pay somebody to do it. <laughs> gotcha. So. Um, once you have the design complete, how do you get ready for the actual installation? Do you do that? Do you turn it over to the client? How do, how do you handle that? Uh, well, it's going to, it depends if, if I'm, if they're wanting me to run the job and, uh, then this would be, you know, this would be kind of like the planning stage and very, very important. And I'm really thinking about, uh, timing. So, uh, earthworks obviously can be done. Anytime the ground isn't frozen, but you need to time it so it's okay to at least, you don't want to at least be able to plant a cover crop as soon as the job is finished so you can dominate that space. But um, late winter or early spring isn't too bad because then you have that spring coming up for, you know, for your bare root stuff, for seeds, 
Uh, late summer is also not too bad either because the fall is a good time to plant trees. And a lot of your tree seeds, you know, you can do as, as a fall planting too. But um, typically you want to do your earthworks before you're planting and you're going to want to plan for that. And then you're also going to want to think about the entire project. So what I like to do is think about the entire project from start to finish. This is what we do first, second, third, fourth, right down the line and make it make a list of all the steps that need to be taken so something doesn't get left out. So the first step might be to line up your labor, your equipment, you know, your materials, make sure that they're going to arrive at the, you know, at the proper time that you need them to. Uh, you might want to, you're probably going to need to notify like Miss Utility. I'm not sure what they have in Texas, but we have like Miss Utility in Pennsylvania, Virginia, where you, they mark, you know, mark. We, we have it. It's called dig test down here. Okay. You know, it's, it's the same type of thing. You call one number, they notify all the utility companies and, right. and they don't always get it right, but at least when they get it wrong, it's not your responsibility anymore once you damage it. <laughs> right. Right. So if, if you get um, so if you get your, uh, you know, your labor, equipment and materials to arrive. So if you plan a, a good date that's going to work for whatever it is, the project that you're doing, and then you make sure to get that labor, equipment and materials to arrive on, the, you know, on or right before the date and then make sure your miss utility is ready, then you're, you're sort of ready to get started at that point. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the big things with the utility things that people don't realize too is, so let's say I call out the utility and I get a, a number for that that registers it, and then if something defers the job for three weeks. Now, it's true that the electrical lines, the phone lines, the gas lines, water lines did not move, but if that number expires, right, yeah. and they were wrong, even though they marked it wrong, I am now liable for the damage because I didn't refresh the numbers. So right. it's really important that if you have to delay the installation, this is a, my old utility contractor days coming back, that you recall that number in. And if the guy that put the marks on the ground wants to just, you know, update it in the system, whatever, that's on him. But that, and I think in most places it's like 14 or 21 days, it then expires and needs to be refreshed. Right. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And then the other thing you run the risk of, even if they just refresh it in the system, if you, if you're, if, if the grass or whatever you're, uh, you know, they sprayed is growing really fast. Um, you could, you, you might not be able to see the marks after a while um, if it's if it's too long. And here in Pennsylvania, they make you if you, you I couldn't call them. Like so let's say I wanted to do a job in, in in a month and a half, and I just wanted to call and get it over with. They'll say no, you got to call back three weeks from now because you can't call too early. So I mean, it's a, it's a whole window of, of, of getting that in, getting it called in. You know, a few weeks before and then having them mark and the whole thing. So. So um, once you complete design uh, design and you get started, what do you find like your average time is to get your part of the install done? Do you install it and walk away? Do you install it and provide ongoing consult? How do you handle that? Well, it's it, ultimately it's up to the client. I mean, I've done plenty of uh, consults where the, the client just wants to, you know, wants help with the project, but they're running everything. And I'm just, you know, saying, hey, they'll, they'll maybe – I've had clients where they give me the design and say, hey, Phil, this is my design. What do you think? And I might say, oh, well, that looks great, but you might want to do this here and this there. And I might find it, find the, 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 the flaws in the design and try to help them uh, to get that right. Or it might be something that they send me, this is my project. This is what I'm going to do. It. These, are, these, are, these are how I'm going to do all these different things. And I might suggest uh, you know, ways to do the labor or, or a different way than what, they're, than what they're planning. But then if I'm going to be the one actually – uh, running the job, you know, a lot of it's going to depend on, you know, the timing of the materials. So if we're, if we're planning to do a bunch of bare root stuff, 
in the early spring, then we've got a we have a really small window uh, of, of time that we can get that stuff in the ground. So a lot of it is is going to depend on uh, whether we're doing a spring or fall planting. Gotcha. Well, what do you think about labor, and how do you determine how many people you need? Well, I think. I think labor is a place where most people that are new to running projects, they always tend to underestimate how long it's going to take. And it really depends on the size, on the size of the project and how critical it is to having the job done quickly. For example, if you have a rented excavator and the machine is constantly waiting on hand labor, then you don't have enough laborers on site. Uh, but if you've got labor that's, that's constantly watching the machine work, which drives me insane, then you probably have way too much labor. And I've done jobs where I've had three laborers and, and only one machine operator, and that worked fine for when I was doing a bent night pond where there was lots of hand labor. Mm-hmm. And I've had other projects where, like the, like the clay line pond I just did, there was uh, two, two machines and two operators, no laborers, and that worked perfectly fine. So uh, for people that are, that are new to running projects and they have no idea, I think a two-man labor crew is a nice, efficient size, and then having one machine with an operator, uh, that, that tends to work okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, do you think people should hire out or do it themselves or arrange for family and friends to help? I mean, I think of, like, the uh, the shows on TV where, like, the guy says, I'm going to give you a brand-new backyard at the Home Depot or whatever. You know, that's all fake. But yeah. then, like, he says he's going to do all this stuff, and then they say, well, you need to have, like, 47 of your, your best fr- friends and family come over to do all the work. Does, does that usually really work out? Yeah, that's it's funny because um, this is one of the, my pet peeves with permaculture too. Is that it's always like, not only are, are we going to get all the materials for free, we're going to go to you know we're going to go to some wildflower meadow and, and pull seeds for free, and we're going to you know dig up trees out of the ground and take them to your site for free. But we're also going to get all the labor for free, which is absolutely crazy and ridiculous. Um, it, it obviously depends on the project how you're going to do it, but. Uh, uh, as far as doing the whole family and friends thing, I personally don't like to, to bring in family and friends to, to work for free or for pizza and beer or whatever you want to call it. I think it can, can be a circus. I mean, the, the first day, it, it's usually great. The first day is great. Everybody's excited. But, it, you know, it's hard work. And, and people have other jobs. They have, you know, other interests. You know, you, you'll find that these people quit and sort of fade pretty quick. And there'll be an excuse, oh, I got to get going. And, you know, leaving you with a, a project that's not quite finished, uh, which can be worse than not than never starting it. If you've got plants that needed to get in the ground that are rotting essentially. Um, but, uh, for small projects, I personally like to do, just do the job myself. I don't want to worry about managing anyone. If I'm doing a small project here, I'm just going to do it myself. I don't want to manage anyone and, uh, I don't want to worry about someone not being reliable, but if I've got a larger project, I actually prefer to hire like uh, temp labor for the job. Yeah. And um, so what ends up happening on, on these bigger jobs is I'll run the job in the machine and then I'll hire a few temp labors to do the hand labor. Do you remember you remember the movie? Temp labor always makes me think of Forrest Gump. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. Because it's, you know, temporary labor is like the, the box of chocolates. You know, you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, definitely. So, so we uh, so sometimes you get the awful workers and then other times you, you get the, the really good guys that might just be between jobs. And um, the good thing about the temp companies is that if a guy's not working out, you just – you, know, you just get rid of them and you find someone else. Um, so big, really big projects, I mean, even bigger projects than that, I might hire and actually hire an operator to run the machine and sure. hire the temporary labor because 
that ends up freeing me up to keep the project on track, deal with all the quality control issues. If I'm not actually on the machine, um, it, it makes it a lot easier on me. And also another thing is, is I found that when you hire a, when you hire a machine operator with a machine, it's usually not that much more expensive than renting the machine without the operator. And these guys are, you know, and I've run excavators and, and skid steers. I've run all these machines, but they're better than me. They do it all the time. So they're going to be a little more efficient too. Yeah, definitely. And on the whole, like, friends and family thing, like, one of the things I've done here is I've done a lot of work on site where I've, I've run workshops. And it, it, it is great because you get a lot of work done. But for people thinking that, I'd chime in here and say, number one, it's never done exactly the way you would have done it if you had a small crew that you were overseeing as a supervisor. Right. Uh, too many people going too many different directions and things don't always get done the way you'd want them done. Number two, your timing is never perfect because you have to accommodate the concept of people showing up, being on your site, leaving, you have to feed them. You, I mean, and we got better at it over the years, you know, with, with, you know, hiring full-time staff to do the, the, the catering and all that. But still, it's not what people think. Cause I, I don't know if you get this from your clients, but I hear from people all the time. I want to run a workshop at my house and we'll get, you know, like 20 <laughs> acres installed in a weekend and people will pay to do it. And it'll be great. And for anybody that's been here and been part of one of those, I don't want anybody to be like thinking I don't, I, I don't appreciate the effort and the work and the results. But I guess I'm kind of in league with Jeff Lawton who said that if the PRI was just a family farm, and that's one of the most amazing sites in the world, it would be further along. Right. Because you do things to accommodate your students that may not be best for the site, the installer, or the project. Right. You know, and you just have to, you know, I, I did seating when it was too late in the year to do seating, but I wanted everybody to see how we would do it, you know, and so it was a bunch of seed. It didn't really grow. Um, the, 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 the reason it was seeded too late is the work was done too late because we couldn't do the workshop earlier in the year because I didn't want anybody to die in the heat, you know, and there's, there's, there's things like that. And that's just whenever you start involving people other than someone paid to do the work, You have to accommodate them, and sometimes the accommodation is worth it. Sometimes it's not worth it, but you have to really not have a what's the word I'm looking for, like a, a rose-colored glasses view of it. Right, right. No, you're. I'm glad you brought that up, Jack. It's funny because we uh, I actually run a permaculture club up here in uh, Lebanon, and um, we did a class on uh, inoculating mushroom logs. So we did a class, and the class was free, but people could buy, you know, they could come in and do a log, and they could, you know, they could buy a log and, and take it home with them. And, um, you know, I mean, we had, and we had lots of logs that were pre-cut, already ready to go. Everything was set up, staged perfectly. You know, after an hour and a half, two hours, everybody, you know, was was happy to do a little a little bit of work. But after an hour and a half or so, it was like, okay, I'm going to take my log and go home. And, you know, my, my, my friend and I, we ended up, you know, three hours after the class, we're still you know, inoculate logs, but that gives you some idea of, of how, how people, you know, what their, what their time frame is for what they want to do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, what about materials? How do you find some of the materials and all? I mean, the one thing about like, if you're a landscaper and you want pansies, it, it, you're not going to plant them in the time of year. You're not supposed to plant them. You go down to the box store. They're there. It's like, a, it's amazing. They're always there. And if you want, you know, red dyed uh, mulch made out of uh, shredded rubber stuff, 
It's there, you know? And a lot of times, like you just mentioned, mushroom inoculation, and fungal spores, and uh, different plants, nitrogen fixers, all of these things we use in the permaculture world, they're just not all always available. And that's something that's made my timing difficult for me because I prefer to do most of my planting in the fall, especially here. And that's a time of year there's a lot of things I can't get. Right. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's, it, and, and being in the permaculture world, it makes it much more complicated to get these projects done because, like you said, we can't get all the materials we want when we want to get them. So it, it just basically, you, you end up, you end up required to have a lot more advanced planning. So for example, and going away from the plants a little bit, for example, you're going to use cardboard. Like I, I did a bunch of cardboard projects this spring where I'm doing, where I'm sheet mulching. Uh, unless, if, unless you want to pay for cardboard, you can't just go get cardboard a week before. I mean, you got to start. I mean, you use a lot of cardboard on on any sort of a you know, if it's any more than like 50 square feet, I mean, you're, you end up using that cardboard up pretty quick. Yeah. And um, so I, I actually have an appliance store down the road, and they have big refrigerator boxes and no staples, no tape. But I can't. I can you know. So every time I drive by there, I stop in and load my you know load my car up or my or load my truck up and. Uh, but I've, that takes a lot of forethought. I'm constantly going there for a project, and it might take me a while to get enough uh, cardboard. And then when you're dealing with, like, plants, if you're dealing with seed, it's not a problem because you can order the seed in advance and, and store it at your house or whatever, and that's not a, that's not a problem. But it's the, it's the trees that end up being a real issue because, you know, we want to get, you know, get certain varieties and things like that, and you can't just go to the nursery. So you're... You know, ordering bare root, that's a great way to get them, but then you've got a, a really small uh, planting window. Another thing you can do is you, if you've got a lot of projects, you can order bare root, pot them up if you've got a good place to keep them until the projects are ready. That's one, uh, one scenario you could do. Or you can plant some of your trees from seed, um, but that obviously that's, that's a different dynamic for, I mean, it's not going to be instant like a lot of people are going to want. But, um, you know, there, it, for somebody who's, Looking to go the cheaper route and is willing to do the maintenance and the thinning of the you know because you're gonna if you're gonna do from seed you're gonna plant a lot more trees than what you're gonna eventually have but um, so yeah and, and as far as like materials like soil and mulch and compost that's usually relatively easy because you can truck that in if you need to but it's the I think the plants are are really the big issue in the you know in cardboard to a lesser extent yeah yeah definitely the cardboard thing we got a real taste for i mean we had an area not that big that we just wanted to cardboard basically the paths between the berms in mm-hmm. and you know it ate up two full truckloads of collapsed boxes really really fast and you can get it but i think people a lot of times like if you have a client that you're going to do sheet mulching with with that and you tell them they need some cardboard if you're not real clear about what you mean by that <laughs> when you show up on install day They've got like this, this, it looks like a significant pile on the floor, but I don't know. It's like spatial perception doesn't really work for people anymore or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you would have to give them a specific square foot and tell them that they need 25% more than that. Just because. Yeah. You got to lie to them because they'll never believe you. <laughs> yeah. And say they need to measure each. But most of your, most of your clients, if you're doing it on a commercial basis, they're going to expect you to show up with the cardboard. They're not going to, they're not going to want to be doing that you know if they, if they were going to get the cardboard themselves they, if they're the type of people that would do that they probably wouldn't hire you to do the actual install now if it's more of a consulting like you're doing permaculture consulting where i'm helping them run the job but they're doing the actual work then those type of people will, you know can source that cardboard but you're right you do got to be really specific and, it, and it's a pain 
you know, I, I, I like sheet mulching and all, but I, you know, if, if you're doing any sort of acreage, I mean, it, it's you're not doing practical. That. Yeah. yeah, it's not practical. No, no. And that's that's like the other thing, too. So, like, you, you really have to handle a client with a quarter acre lot, a two acre lot and a 20 acre farm very, very differently. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, when you are working on a project, what are some of the biggest challenges you end up running into? Well, there, there's always something that goes wrong, always. I, I don't think I've ever been on a project where everything went exactly according to plan. There's always something that doesn't go according to plan. And I think if I think you really can't be married to your design like, okay, this is on paper and it's going to translate 100% to real life. It, that never works out. And I think if you get if you're really rigid and you're like it has to go this way, um, I think ultimately what what ends up getting installed is worse than if you can be kind of flexible. What I've found is that if I'm flexible with my designs, that usually when I'm making changes during the job, it makes the it makes the it makes the final product better than what I thought was going to be there on paper. But um, some of the common issues might be things like you know obviously weather is a common one, but labor. Um, you know, if you do a, a bad job of estimating your materials, uh, weather is something that you can mitigate, you know, just by watching what's, you know, what's coming up with the weather. Um, but it's not always rain that's an issue that you kind of have to be worried about. For example, the, the clay line pond project I did recently, we had an issue where there wasn't enough rain uh, and the clay was too dry. So they wouldn't compact. And uh, so what we ended up having to do is basically take the excavator through because this was because we we're actually trucking clay in for this project. And so what we had to do is take the excavator and, and sort of uh, go through the pile and spray the spray the pile down. So we had to sort of mix it all up to where it's not too wet, but a, a little bit of moisture and enough moisture and not too dry. And it was just had to be just right. So it compacted. But uh, that was a real pain in the butt. Um, and we, we, you know, we talked about labor earlier, but one thing to realize with labor is when things start to get hard and the job is difficult, you know, that's when the excuses start to come out. And then if you, you know, if you're using temp labor, it's not as much of an issue because you can kind of fire the guy and get someone new pretty quick. Um, like instantly. I think that's one of the big mistakes I've seen made by people using temp labor. Oh, the guy will work out. Well, it's a two day job. You don't have time for him to work out. Yeah, exactly. He has to go away now, immediately. Right. Now. Absolutely. And I think people are probably afraid to, to say something. I remember I had a, I had a guy on a project that was just, he was, he started complaining right when he first got there. It was hot. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it was heavy work that we were doing. I mean, we were, you know, we were spreading 50 pound bags of bentonite in a pond and he was, you know, he was, you know, complaining and bitching the whole time. And, and, uh, you know, finally he was like, well, I'm going to, it's getting too hot. I'm going to go home. And I was like, well, don't come back tomorrow, you know, because it's going to be hot tomorrow. So I didn't want him to go home at, at noon and then come back tomorrow and do the same thing because it would have just happened again. Um, but, uh, uh, going to like the uh, material side, I'd mentioned before about that also being an issue. If you order, you know, if you don't order, like if I needed 200 yards of clay to line a pond and it turned out I only needed 100, I mean, obviously I've wasted a ton of money, but then I've got to find a space for the. To get rid of it. Yeah, and or, or on the other extreme is that I have too little, then I've got to source it at the last minute, and that can be a pain. So you really want to do all the, the proper math to get all the material uh, stuff correct. Yeah, and things like clay, like so I'm fixing to put in a, bet, a fairly large bentonite line pond, and by making the pond bigger, I'm paying a lot less you know, per ton for the clay. 
Right. But if I need an extra 500 pounds, uh, they're not going to factor that into my existing discount. I'm going to pay full retail on that. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, I, when I did a bentonite pond here, I actually had to do, I actually had to get bentonite in bags. Wow. And mix it. it. And if I could do it over, I would have I would have brought the clay in and not done the bentonite. But uh, I had to mix it. It was tremendously labor intensive. It was a, it was a powerful learning experience. But uh, um, if I were short bentonite on 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 this on that particular project I'm talking about, it would have been a problem because I had to order the bag stuff because I couldn't get it locally. Sure. So it would have been a nightmare. Like, OK, well, we can't finish the job. And I've got mine trucked in from 800 miles away. Yeah, well, that kind of puts it in perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's much better. So I'm assuming you guys get some bentonite from the uh, from the oil and gas industry down there. Well, it's the same place they get it, but okay. they mine it in West Texas, and you can, you know, there'll be a, a truck that'll come here that'll look an awful lot like something that might be transporting some ungodly amount of milk. Yeah, dump from the center. They're like this big, deep-bodied tank-looking thing. And that's what they, the, the big thing is they use it here for that. So we can actually get it really affordable, as affordable as it can be, I guess, you know, right now, because there's so much oil and gas work and so much of it being transported anyway. But what kills you is, like, that truck is not like a truck that goes to Walmart and drops some stuff off and then delivers bentonite and then does a run for, you know, AT, a, ABF, uh, a freight and then goes back to Walmart. It's a purpose built truck. It hauls right. bentonite in, in, in powdered form, which means it goes 800 miles out here and dumps it and goes 800 miles empty back out west. Uh, so it mitigates how good a deal you can get. But when you compare it to buying it in pallets, Mm -hmm. Um, you, you come out way ahead. Basically, the guy that's doing the install talked to me into doubling it because he said, I can double it for 15% more. Right. Because it'll cost you that much less because like all the money's in the bentonite. The, the, the actual machine work is two days. It's about 1500 bucks. Right. All the money's in the clay. So if there was more room, I probably would have bought two truckloads of bentonite. Honestly. Yeah. Here, yeah. You can always use it. You can always use it in a, uh, if you're worried about the pond ceiling, I mean, yeah. you can always use more. Yeah. But I mean, that's just like one example of like, that's how things can go wrong. And I think a lot of people, and, and you know, the big reason I brought you on today is we have so many people that not just want to do permaculture. That's one thing. Cause you can screw all kinds of things up on your own property and it's really not that big a deal as long as it's not a type one error. As long right. as you didn't put a pond in the wrong place or a house in the wrong place. If you dug a hole, you can fill it in. If you planted a bad tree, you can yank it out. If a tree dies, you can replace it. But when you get into business, every one of those mistakes I just said is money gone. Yep. And people always underestimate their expenses early in a business. And you can usually get through it. But if you make too many mistakes, it will kill you. And, and that's why they say if a business makes it five years, it probably survives. Because by then, you've done everything stupid you're going to do. And if you've survived, survived your first, you know, three to five years of being stupid, you won't be stupid anymore, and it'll only get better from there. Yeah, you're absolutely If you don't make that three to five years, you, you don't make it. <laughs> right. You're absolutely right. And what I see with, with young contractors is they're always afraid to price their projects appropriately. Like, they're afraid that the client's going to say it's too much, and they're, yeah. so, they're so worried. It's like, look, you you got to know your costs, and you got to know your profit margins, and you got to you got to price your projects accordingly. If somebody doesn't want to pay it, then you move on to somebody who will. Well, I, I mean, a lot of times I think what it is is people are afraid that the 
the next person bid less and I have to be under them to win the job. And right. I think if you have to be less expensive than your competition to win the job, you either don't want the job or you don't want the client. Right. It's one or the other. Either you don't want the job because it's not going to make you money, right. or you don't want the client because the client is, is motivated the wrong way. Um, I would rather have a client tell me, okay, well, this is like a $10,000 job. I don't, I just don't have $10,000. Right. Great. What do you have? Okay, yeah. let's build the job to your budget and do it quality. If you got five grand, let's do five grand in quality, uh, rather than try to get 10 grand out of five because you never will. Right. And right. contractor, the day they start losing money on your job, you go from being a valued client to a complete and total pain in the ass that they want to separate from as soon as possible. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They absolutely do. Um, you know, and that's when the shady stuff starts to happen. So you got to be really, you know, careful about that. And it's not that they want to be that. I think a lot of times contractors get bad raps. It's not that they want to be that way, but we all are self-preservationists. You get into a mode where if I don't do this, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. Right. And and that's. And you don't want to be the customer or the contractor in that situation. So, like, when you were talking about labor, one of the things I always did with smaller jobs, if there was enough budget there, I would always budget enough man hours to put one extra body on the site. And mm -hmm. that way, if I had to fire somebody, I had in the budget to fire somebody. Right. And it's amazing when you have, like, five guys doing a job, and one of them's just a ass clown, and, like, two hours into it, you go, you know what? I'll need you. Goodbye. Yep. Those other four often turn into like super rock stars, man. They, cause there's two things I think there. One, there's a little bit of a fear motivation, but I don't know about you, but when I worked a regular job, the thing that, that, that was the most demotivating to me was watching one of my coworkers drag ass and get away with it. That was right. so bad for morale. But if that guy got thrown out, I'm like, okay, then, then obviously I'm appreciated for working. So I think you get both enthusiastic work from the remaining workers because they appreciate the work and you get, you know, a little bit of a motivation like, hey, if I don't get my stuff together, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be in trouble. And if you can get the same guys back, and sometimes you can, if you have a little bit of money left over because you threw that guy off and you, you know, give each guy an hour bonus or something. Absolutely. You know, man, that guy comes back to work for you. He wants to work for you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, one thing we did uh, in my old business, not my current business is not just not big enough to have full time guys on all the time. So I use temporary labor. But my old business, we we paid everybody by by the job. So guys yeah. were, made a percentage. So there was so everybody was motivated to get the job done. And if we had laborers that didn't weren't working hard, the foreman would come to me and say, you got to get rid of this guy. He's not working because everybody's had the same. All everybody's uh, interests were aligned. But if everybody's just working straight hourly, Then it, you know, the, the only way you make more money in straight hourly is just to work more hours, you know. So um, it's good to have interests aligned. But I, I think you, if you're if you're having a business, I mean, having an eye towards finding a way to do performance pay, I think is a great way to to get more out of people. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I'm fine with paying a guy for eight hours if he does eight hours worth of work in six. He gets to go home two two hours early. He beats traffic. He's happy that day. Instead of kicking his dog when he gets home, he pets his dog. He wants to come back and work for me. You can't always do it, um, but when you can, and and people say, well, what about the customer then? They've overpaid. No, 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 no. And I think that's right. We can't be afraid to make profit now because that's how we serve the next customer. 
Right. Um, because here's what I've tried to teach people with businesses. If you don't make enough money per unit, job, whatever, you know, your ARPU's not right, whatever, then more business will put you out of business faster. Right. And new entrepreneurs get into a business think, if I just get more business, if I just get more business, well, if you're losing, now if you have no business, it's different, or you have one contract a quarter and it's small, then that's different. But if you're doing a reasonable amount of work and you're running negative or baseline cash flow or not enough profit where you'd be better off working at a convenience store, getting 10 more just like that will put you out of business this week. And, and we have to model businesses so that doesn't happen. Right. Absolutely. So when you do get a job done and you get into that maintenance phase, how do you really plan for that? Do you leave your customers with like, here's a maintenance schedule or do you say, do you want me to come back and do it for recurrent revenue? How, how do you handle that? Well, if, if you're working with, with, you know, if you're working with a client and you actually perform maintenance as part of your business, and if you're planning, if anybody out there is planning to do this on a commercial scale, actually doing commercial design and inst or permaculture design and installation, I would highly, highly, highly suggest that you figure out how to do the maintenance too. We always made way more money on maintenance than we ever did on any sort of uh, design and install, and it's much more steady type work. And I think on the permaculture side of things. It's even more, I think it would be even more profitable because it's not something that everybody knows how to do. The permaculture style maintenance is going to be, is much more specialized than, you know, Moblo and Goat guys that are, that are spraying lawns and doing that type of thing. Um, so what, what you'd want to do is you'd want to uh, be able to provide them with a maintenance contract to maintain the project after it's installed. Now, if you have a client that's, hey, look, I want to do the maintenance myself. You could always set up uh, your consultancy and say, hey, you know, I can come out a couple times at, at a, an interval that makes sense to show you, you know, what to weed, not what not what to leave, you know, what to what to chop and drop and when, what type, you know, what things might need to be minimally pruned, uh, you know, just so that they're able to, you know, get that project going from its infancy to, you know, what, what you envisioned it when it was fully mature. So there might be things like uh, you're going to need to, you know, reseed this clover or whatever, you know, once a year, or you're going to need to do X, Y, and Z. And that's, those are all the things that you can plan for with a maintenance type schedule. Yeah. And I think it might be a good bit of incremental revenue in the client that just, you, you go see four to six times a year and just say, here's the things I would do right now. Here's mm -hmm. the things I wouldn't do right now. Mm -hmm. Because there's always going to be a tree with a, a weird disease. Mm -hmm. Or uh, an area that was supposed to be weed blocked that's got weeds coming up. And, well, do I need to re-weed block it or do I need to do some amendments to the soil to reduce, to increase the fertility and reduce the, the uprising of the weeds? And the, the customer doesn't really know that. And right. the, the, the confidence they get from like a one-hour meeting with you um, allows them to do the right things. They stay happier. You keep coming back. You make your money. But it's not that much of a cost to them on an ongoing basis. But I'm with you. I think the best thing you could do from a from a business model would be to have a good book of business of customers that have you coming in and doing their regular maintenance for them. And that makes me kind of like in the big picture look toward like some of the best clients would be things like corporate campuses or something like that because they're not really an agriculture business, but they have an output of production and they have a budget already set for some sort of groundskeeping. Right. So why not make it productive? Right. Right. And, 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 yeah. Another thing too is even if you have a client 
Like, and this is going to straight maintenance. Like, let's say you have somebody that doesn't have a permaculture site. They're just a regular old, you know, suburban lot. And they say, hey, we, I want you to maintain my property in, in a more permaculture style. You can do that without any installation of any sort of permaculture design whatsoever. It's just a matter of, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to stop spraying. We're going to, uh, we're going to mow twice a, twice a month in the spring and maybe once a month in the summer. And we're going to let a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of the flowers bloom. So we're, we're inviting in the pollinators and the insect predators and we're, you know, having those nectar sources and we're going to, uh, you know, we're not going to prune everything like little tiny balls and we're going to, you know, you know, there's ways to do that for people that want to have a more a healthier site and want to have a more natural site. And then guess what? You're spending less money on maintenance. And the, the other guys are not going to say, hey, they, the other guys are going to want to mow every single week. They're going to want to spray. They're going to want to, you know, maintain it in a certain way. Um, but I think that's a that's an opportunity that might be coming at some point once people start to understand, you know, what you know, what these chemicals and things are doing to the property, what, the, you know, mowing everything down to an inch of its life, what it's doing for the soil and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think that the, there's there's probably that big suburban opportunity there as well, as long as you can do it quick enough that you keep the cost down. Because, like, a homeowner is going to tell you, let's say we just take the True Green Kemlon stuff out. Just if I'm going to have somebody come mow and edge and blow – Right, mm-hmm. and just keep a, a decent looking yard for me. You know, I can get that done for thirty five bucks a week. Right. So you have to come up with a model that is at least approaching that maintenance cost. It, it could be more, especially if there's an output to the customer. Like the customer realizes, well, I get all this food, I pay a little bit more, but then this is offset. But there's a timeline to that. Obviously, you can't do that with heavy annual production because you don't have the time to do that. There has to be a, a very much a perennial focus there and what have you. But I think there's the opportunity if it's done right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's huge opportunities there. Cool, man. So um, where can people learn more about what you're doing and how to work with you? Well, I have a uh, – my blog is uh, foodproduction101.com, and my YouTube channel is PA. So you'll be able to you'll be able to find me uh, in those two places. And uh, for people that may want to work with you, kind of what is your initial um, your, your initial process like? So if I phoned you up and it turned out that I was a hundred miles away, would you be interested in that job? Would you say it's too far? You know, and and if you did work, how much work do you do before you get on site? How's that process kind of roll out for the person that wants to to engage your service? So if yeah, so if somebody wants to to work with me, usually what I'll do is I'll give them a I'll talk with them on the phone and give them a you know forty five minutes to an hour for free. So somebody just to find out if that, if I'm a good fit for them and vice versa. Uh, so if somebody's a hundred miles away, uh, I have no problems traveling a hundred miles. It just gets you know that just gets charged uh, mm-hmm. for my time. So basically, and and my uh, I'm seventy five bucks an hour, which isn't outrageous. And, um, and I just basically build my time. So some of my clients, you know, they want me to do kind of the whole thing and other ones, it's just like, Hey, um, I'm going to do the project, but I need somebody kind of over my shoulder, making sure I don't make any mistakes. And, um, and to be honest with you, I actually spend the least amount of hours on those clients. Yeah. Those clients tend to have the best projects because they're invested in it. And then I'm, and then, and then they're getting the benefit of all the mistakes I've made in my, in, in my, 
time here and um, you know and they're benefiting from that without having to make the mistakes themselves and they're not having to pay me a ton of money to do it either well and I think like the cost is something people need to get their heads around because one good designer can save you twenty thousand dollars an acre in your first couple of years on a major installation right you really can I don't think people understand how much money you can spend how fast on bad decisions and how there's no, it, it's not like, you know, we talked about the, the artistic design stuff and all. If I put something in the wrong place on paper and figure that out, there's an eraser for that. When you spend real money, real time, and real resources to put something in the ground, it's not that easy to just change. And sometimes it's really expensive. And sometimes, especially if it's a commercial operation, it's your only choice. Like, if, if you plant a couple varieties of something that are not going to produce enough to make a profit, no matter how bad it hurts, they got to come out and something else has to go in. Right, right. So cool, man. Hey, I appreciate you being with us here today. Uh, I think people got a really great look at the ins and outs of actually doing this for a living. Um, just real quick, I didn't really ask you, how long have you been running your, your, your current business? My current business I've had since 2000. I think well, I incorporated in 2009, but okay. I probably had been doing the permaculture bent until like 2012-ish. Well, that's great though. You're, you're past the three years of killing yourself and putting yourself out of business. So. Yeah, <laughs> uh, things, yeah. things have nowhere to go but uh, up with an establishment now. So cool, man. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that that's that's been working out for you. And again, uh, your website, real quick before we wrap up. It's uh, foodproduction101.com. And I'll make sure I do have uh, links to it in the show notes today. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Phil Williams helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.